Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. March is Save Your Vision Month, a time to promote the importance of regular, comprehensive eye care. One of the themes this year focuses on a big change in most of our lives over the past 20 years, how much time we spend staring at a computer, monitor, tablet, or mobile phone. It probably is 2016's version of that warning from parents, don't sit too close to the TV. Maybe not. A discussion of eye care and eye health on today's program. In fact, it's a good time if you have a question about your eyesight, maybe a child, maybe a parent, anyone else, any kind of question that you've had about about eye health, give us a call. Our guest is Dr. Marion Boltz, who is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Penn State Eye Center, and Dr. Greg Caldwell, a doctor of optometry who practices in Duncansville near Altoona. Dr. Boltz and Caldwell, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Scott. It's my pleasure. Let me, again, give that phone number, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right. What I said in the introduction there about sitting too close to the TV, is that a myth or... Did that really have a, an impact on her eyes? Well, I'll tell you, as a pediatric optometrist, I hear this question all the time from still parents. I still hear it today. In <laughs> fact, you know, I'll be prescribing glasses or explaining an eye health problem, and the parents will undoubtedly ask, well, was it caused by, you know, him sitting too close to the television? <laughs> and, of course, as you say, in today's world, it's, you know, the TV is, of course, still a big part of our lives, but computer screen, our tablets, the iPads, the Game Boys. So this is you know, probably more so the, the topic of discussion today with right. those digital devices. But the bottom line, did sitting too cro- close to the TV cause an issue? Absolutely not. Okay. That's what I've I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> exactly. I've been wearing glasses since I was in third grade, and now I can finally say to my mother, it was not because I was sitting too close to the TV. That's correct. And I also didn't cross my eyes because I didn't want that to happen permanently because we knew that was another <laughs> one that you hear. But let me start with a a very broad question. Uh, What can we do to protect our vision and eye health? Certainly. Well, I'd say that we we talk about particularly starting young, you know, and as a pediatric specialist, this is definitely a big topic of discussion I try to have with parents, you know, when we have the time, you know, after the child's exam. And, you know, one of the first basic things we talk about is basically protecting your eyes from the sun. You know, when we look at a lifetime, when do we really spend the most time outside? That's as kids. And it's something that I think all of us tend to forget because we're so focused on the exam and, you know, prescribing prescription glasses or explain the problems that it's so important for all of us to tell parents that, you know, getting a pair of sunglasses, even the transition lenses that, that go from the regular prescription glasses into sunglasses when you go outdoors, very important because of that long time ultraviolet light exposure does put us at higher risk of developing cataracts earlier in life. Also, we hear so much about macular degeneration being a significant eye health problem for our seniors. We know that that's even tied to lifetime ultraviolet light exposure. So protecting our kids young, that, that's an important thing. You know, protecting, we protect our skin with sunscreen. The sunglasses are a way to do that for our eyes. A few of the things you mentioned we're going to talk about today, but that is something that we don't think of. Maybe it needs a little more attention because, uh, although, you know, I hate to say it, but there, there seem to be so many people who, when they 
put on a pair of sunglasses do it for fashion reasons rather than to sure. protect their eyes. What are, you know, since you brought it up, even for children, what would you recommend as far as protecting your eyes uh, from, from sunlight? Oh, certainly. You know, a pair of quality prescription sunglasses, something that is going to have that 100% UV protection. And whether that is in a no prescription decent pair, and you know, if someone doesn't need to wear prescription glasses, they can still get a good quality pair that does have 100% UVA and UVB protection. But then also, if someone does have prescription lenses, you know, they have the ability of getting prescription sunglasses that have all of that good uh, protective quality, as well as, you know, keeping, you know, making it dark, making you more comfortable when you're outside in the bright sun. Also, I think the society, we've gotten more common recommending transition lenses, particularly for children, because I I tell parents, it's a no brainer, you know, to not have to keep track of two different pairs of glasses. The children are automatically, particularly if they're wearing their glasses all the time anyway, they go outside. They have that ultraviolet light protection automatically, so mm-hmm. it's very good. Dr. Caldwell, uh, you know, when I, I did a promo for the program, as I do for everyone, and I described the two of you as being two renowned professionals, and uh, <laughs> you made a face, but you're being, <laughs> you, you have a, re- a reputation. You speak worldwide. What are some of the things that uh, you talk to audiences about? Um, I basically speak on ocular disease. Um, it could be anywhere from cataracts to macular degeneration uh, to diabetes. Um, and I speak to a lot of eye docs, just teaching them how to uh, take uh, a lot of the studies that are out there and applying them clinically to benefit our patients. Mm-hmm. We hear so often about studies having to do with our health, uh, some that are uh and are a little counterintuitive. They're different than, uh, you know, what we've heard. Not so much that I know of, that I've noticed anyway, when it comes to vision or eyes, that it seems, you know, we learn a lot as we're going, but you don't hear a, a news story 10 years later that, oh, that's not what, what you should have done. So it seems to be pretty consistent. Yeah, it, it is very consistent. I mean, I think the two things that uh, we can take away is, you know, eat healthy. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your body. And if you're a smoker, quit smoking because we do know that a, a lot of um, eye conditions are linked to smoking or make a lot of the eye conditions worse. So eat healthy and, and don't smoke. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Two things that we don't normally associate with vision care, smoking and diet. How does diet impact uh, your vision or your eyes? Um, from, a, from a couple different ways, from a very common factor of dry eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, having a proper diet creates the proper nutrients for your eyes and for your tear film, for your tear film to wet uh, your eyes properly. Um, especially working on these digital devices, as mm-hmm. Dr. Boltz was talking about there, and uh, macular degeneration. Um, we do know that a healthy diet uh, will, um, even though macular degeneration is genetic, um, that a good diet will uh, help slow down the process uh, of macular degeneration. What do you call a good diet? Um, you, know, you know, eating your leafy greens and, uh, you know, everything in moderation. You know, I think it was what it comes down to is, if you know, if you're going to go and eat greasy food all day long, you're going to have, uh, and every day you're going to have an issue. So just uh, a healthy, balanced diet and everything in moderation. Mm-hmm. What about smoking? We all know it's just bad. You know, it's one heck of a vice to break. I mean, I have family members I've watched them go through trying to, to, to quit smoking, and they have successfully done it. 
but um, you know, you know smoking is just not good for the body. It's not good for the eyes. Mm -hmm. but what in in specifics does it uh, impact with the eyes? We 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 definitely know for sure that it's uh, linked to worsening of macular degeneration um, and to to the dry eye uh, side of it. Uh, not. Only does it mess up the tear chemistry, just the smoke going into the eyes and that irritant all day long uh, can lead to uh, ocular surface disease. Mm -hmm. A lot of the terms that you're using, some of the conditions that you're describing, we're going to talk about those. But, you know, it, it always, I always find it interesting of how uh, television advertising campaigns have an influence. Dry eye seems to have gotten so much more attention since that one prescription medication that uh, we hear about all the time that we have seen that commercial very, very often where, and I don't know whether she's an optometrist or the, the doctor who says, I'm, you know, I suffer from dry eye as well. But do you, have the two of you heard more about that since that commercial has been airing for the past couple of years? I think... People are more educated about it. You know, we do have patients come in, ask a little bit about that particular medication or just in general. I feel that things can, you know, really, even though we may not be promoting that particular medication, it does open up the conversation that patients do feel more, a little bit more knowledgeable, a little bit more open to discuss it. What is dry eye? So dry eye... You know, it's it's more than just oh my eyes are dry. You know, yeah, there are yeah, different that's things, why right? I asked because it, it seems to be one of those self-explanatory exactly, things. Exactly. Yeah. So there are really two main different types of dry eye, and these can affect us one or the other at different times throughout our lives. We were talking about the computer vision syndrome or mm -hmm. computer staring at the screens. Well, ironically, in children we are actually seeing more dry eye issues. And this is probably the one people say, well, what are we seeing with all this computer use with, you know, are we seeing, you know, any problems in kids? Well, I would say at least for me and for my practice and certainly what I've read about other doctors' experience, we are seeing this dry eye. And that's what we call just more evaporative dry eye. It's when we stare at something, we don't blink as often. In fact, they've done studies to show particularly staring at a screen or one of our small, you know, electronic devices. They've actually done studies counting how many times someone blinks, and we do not blink as much as we're staring. So when we don't blink, the tear film is not equally distributed across the front surface of the eye. So you get dry patches, and that will eventually cause, you know, irritation, probably more so, I mean, even blurry vision for people. In fact, that's probably the biggest thing that patients coming into our offices don't realize, that when you have dry eye, yes, you may come in saying, oh, my eyes feel dry, but probably the number one complaint we get that we can tie back to is actually blurry vision, blurry vision that kind of comes and goes. And even in kids, we're, we're seeing this a little bit more. Is it because kids are using devices more often? You know, I think in general, all of us are, so kids and adults. Now, I mentioned that's the one type of dry. The other type of dry is related to, yes, having a little bit more birthdays and the composition of our tear film that as we age. I like how you put that, yeah. having a little more in the way of birthdays. In other words, getting older. That's right. I try to use that in the office, too. <laughs> but um, this composition of our tear film does change over our lifetime and also changes, as Greg was saying, Dr. Caldwell was saying, uh, when smoking comes into effect, when our diets are not as good as we like them to be. And one thing I actually do want to add to that uh, nutrition conversation is, you know, it is funny as eye doctors to talk about people's diets, but right. we are doing this more and more. And the three things that I feel probably have the biggest punch in terms of really good for the eyes, particularly for our older patients with, you know, on the verge of macular degeneration, kale, 
spinach, and collard greens. So there's probably kale is the number one. Well, kale's become pretty popular today, and you see it everywhere, but it is really great. So, yes, carrots are still good for your eyes, but <laughs> certainly those really dark green leafies tend to be very good. Dr. Goldwell? Yeah, um, you know, feeding off of what Dr. Boltz was saying with regarding um, and, and feeding off of your question, you know, why is there so much attention? Um, I think just our treatments have gotten a lot better over the, over the years. We have, when you go to the um, to the drugstore, you see a whole litany of artificial tears, and some of these artificial tears even custom uh, uh, tailored for the patient. We can guide as as optometrists, we can guide the patient which one, which artificial tear to get. Um, you mentioned the topical uh, pharmaceuticals that are out there. We have oral pharmaceuticals, and we talked about diet. Uh, omega-3 fatty acids are really good. It's good for our heart. It's good for our tear film. We have lid scrubs, and we can tailor a, a treatment plan. Um, there's punctal plugs that we can put in to help. They're kind of like putting a stopper in a drain, and uh, it, can, it can preserve the tears on the eye. And on top of it, uh, uh, one of the newer um, technologies that are out there, is from when a baby is born, recovering the amniotic membrane. And there's companies out there that can put that membrane, and we put that membrane on the eye to help treat dry eye. We were talking about studies. And uh, one study that I just recently read is that how when people don't report to their optometrist that they have dry eye, that it's linked to depression and because uh, they just get depressed at the way their eyes feel. And so they just need to make sure that if they're having any symptoms of dry eye, foreign body sensation, watery eyes, eyes hurting by the end of the day to make sure that they see their optometrist so that they can um, get treated uh, for this condition. Mm -hmm. I had a question here from uh, a listener about the, the difference between uh, ophthalmologist and optometrist. No, you both can answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're being very kind. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> like so in the eye care field, there is what we call the three O's of eye care. So just to explain, there's opticians, optometrists, and ophthalmologists. So opticians are the ones that actually are trained to fit glasses, to help you pick out your glasses, and also make the glasses, do all the specific optical um, you know, work to make glasses, and, and, and also can be very proficient in contact lenses in terms of, of the knowledge and selling them and things like that. Now, we as optometrists are one of the two doctors of eye care, and you know, the differences between optometrists and ophthalmologists do differ in terms of our educational paths. Um, as optometrists, we have a four-year undergraduate degree and then go on to four years optometry school with optional residencies after that to specialize. Both Dr. Caldwell and I are residency trained I in pediatrics and Dr. Caldwell in ocular disease and primary care. So, you know, one of the, the misnomers really about optometrists is that so many people, unfortunately, today think we're still just prescribing glasses and contacts. And we as optometrists do so much more based on our training. We have, as you can hear from Dr. Caldwell talking, you know, we have quite a thorough ocular disease education. We can treat in, you know, every state is a little different based on the state rules and regulations, but we have the ability pers to prescribe both topical and oral medications to treat most eye diseases. Um, and even some states, we have some laser surgery procedures, not in Pennsylvania, but it, it does vary from state to state. Now, ophthalmologists really are the eye surgeons, and their career path is a little different as they go directly to medical school. 
and then do a three-year ophthalmology residency where they're really focusing on learning eye surgery and much more complex forms of eye disease. I actually train and teach ophthalmology residents at Penn State Hershey Eye Center, so know very much about that process. Yeah. All right, so we got that uh, clarified. So, so to boil it down uh, there, Scott, is that um, you know we don't do cataract surgery, we don't do retinal detachment surgery. When it comes to physically cutting into the eye, um, that's where optometrists uh, kind of draw the line, where, like Mary Ann said in other states, like Kentucky, Louisiana, and Oklahoma, we can do laser procedures. But you do the diagnosis. Oh, correct. Right. Absolutely. Okay. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing eye health vision care during Save Your Vision Month. Our guest today, Dr. Greg Caldwell, a doctor of optometry at, uh, who practices in Duncansville near Altoona. Dr. Marianne Boltz is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Penn State Eye Center. We welcome your questions and comments about the vision care and uh, your caring for your eyes. Call us at 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF's uh, Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 Seven five three two. All right, let's talk about. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, digital eye strain, and I think you've touched on a little bit. Just to clarify a little bit, what are some of the symptoms if you, you are experiencing, and you say, "Well, I have digital eye strain," or "I think I do," I have to uh, go get some treatment. Oh, certainly. Well, we've talked already quite a bit about the dry eye symptoms, right, and right, that's one right. of the first things. But definitely headaches. What people familiarize even as eye strain, sort of a headache or or discomfort in the brow region. You know, that's certainly we're going to see quite a bit of that. And most of the symptoms are going to start, you know, as that work day or that school day or just working on that computer. The longer you do it, the more those symptoms are going to come to play. So definitely the dry eye, definitely the, the headaches. What we are seeing in our offices when we, of course, do eye exams is seeing that this long-term focusing at one particular point is actually straining are what they call the accommodative or focusing system. So we're seeing children and young adults, probably up until middle age, having more problems with focusing at near, which basically symptoms would be blurry vision at near, that they even notice they're having a hard time focusing on other things, even reading the newspaper, reading their school books. So I think those are probably the, the main symptoms we hear. So how's it treated? So we, we do look at, you know, some basic things to start off with. So one thing people may have heard about is what we call the 20-20-20 rule. So this is in general to give our eyes a little break from staring at that screen. We say for every 20 minutes of screen time, you take a 20-second break by either closing your eyes for 20 seconds or even better, staring 20 feet away down a hallway, across a room. The best thing is actually even out a window as far as you can. So, okay, so I'm just going to look out there and see the... <laughs> you actually have some good opportunities to yeah. do that here. In the, in the <laughs> yes. So that's one of the first things we do. Um, we treat the symptoms otherwise. So we treat the dry eye, as, as, as Dr. Caldwell has talked about. And then also we will sometimes have to address the focusing issues. So that might be something as simple as prescribing a pair of reading glasses or bifocals if that person's already wearing a prescription. Um, if it's serious enough, it may involve doing some eye exercises called vision therapy, which actually help to regain the efficiency of those accommodative or focusing skills. Yeah, another way that you can, uh, can treat this is that there's a lot of um, blue light that comes off of these instruments. And some of the uh, anti-reflective coatings out there, if you see them nowadays, um, they look a little purple. 
and uh, what that's doing is filtering out this harmful blue light that comes from these computer screens, handheld devices, these, the iPads. So, um, so we can use a special, you know, your, your optometrist can prescribe um, this anti-reflective coating that helps block out this harmful blue light. And just recently, we saw um, just last week you can get the update on your on your iPhone. I'm I'm an iPhone user, so I'm not sure about the Droid side, but they have night shift. Where you know, as you get into the, the the dusk and dawn hours, where the the blue light is filtered out, um, and it you know supposedly help you with sleep, but it's also minimizing that harmful blue light. So hmm. there's a couple of different ways to think about it. All right, let's take some phone calls. We have a call from Charles in Lancaster. Charles, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, I have sort of the opposite of uh, dry eyes. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, um, because of had excessive tearing in my right eye, um, an optometrist, ophthalmologist maybe, um, did testing on my right eye tear duct and uh, informed me that it was uh, obstructed. And uh, I was wondering whether there is uh, not simple but uh, maybe efficient way to unblock the tear duct okay. and I've only had it for several years so it's not some sort of uh, permanent uh, condition I hope <laughs> Dr. Caldwell? Yeah, uh, I'm going to kind of feed off of it beforehand with the caller is that uh, one of the major symptoms of a dry eye is a watery eye so that's one of the diagnoses that you have to go through is determine whether the eye is dry and the brain's trying to fix it by producing you know, more tears the, the collar, you know, what strikes me is it's one eye, and that's usually whenever the drainage system is blocked. Um, there are ways of treating that. Uh, one way is what we can do as an optometrist is we dilate the puncta, we flush some saline through it, and if we do find it's blocked, that's whenever we can refer out uh, to an ophthalmologist or to an ENT, and there's a procedure called a dacryocystorhinostomy, DCR for short, and there's two ways of doing it. You can do it from an external approach, and you can do it endoscopically up through the nose, and that's typically where the uh, where the ENT doc comes into play. So um, you know, it's it's still surgery, but it's it's not major surgery, um, and that's what I would encourage uh, this caller to do. So he he needs treatment. Nothing he could do at home to you know alleviate that. Yeah, I would you know I would also you know confirm the confirm the diagnosis and then get a consult. Charles, thank you very much for your call. Hopefully that answered your question. Let's see. Uh, let's go to Stephanie in Harrisburg. Stephanie, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I had. Uh, well, I'm totally blind. Okay, and of course I I do suffer with dry eyes, but that's because my eyes don't blink properly. Uh, but. Uh, a while back, I didn't tell my eye doctor that I was losing my light perception, and he said, you should have said something. We could save it. I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, they can try to save sight, but once you lose it, it's gone. And my other question is, if you're totally blind, should you still be seeing an eye doctor? Mm. Stephanie, two good questions. Thank you very much for your call. Absolutely. Well... Stephanie, to answer your, your last question, certainly, should I still be seeing an eye doctor? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Now, certainly, we are not going to be focusing on, you know, maybe prescribing glasses or focusing on that aspect of 
of someone's vision care for you, but we'd certainly be looking at other aspects of your eye health. You know, while certainly you have lost quite a bit of vision, there are conditions of the eye that can be very uncomfortable, even painful for you. So these are things like even looking at the pressure of your eye, testing for glaucoma. We'd want to make sure that in general, you're staying in the range you should be. If that would start creeping up or some other, there are some different types of glaucoma that can be actually very painful. And so we would not want that. So, you know, you may not necessarily need an eye exam every year, but I would say every two to three years would certainly still be very appropriate just to check those other areas of your eye health. Now, the first thing she mentioned, though, that when she said uh, that her doctor yes. said, I wish yes. you had told me that. Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, those, those comments, Stephanie, really ring near and dear to my heart because of two reasons. My specialty in pediatrics and also I do run our low vision rehabilitation service at Penn State Hershey's Eye Center. So, you know, I'm familiar with both ends of, of the eye spectrum, I guess you could say in that sense. Uh, you know, certainly there are diseases of the eye that if caught early enough, we certainly can treat and prevent, if not total vision loss, certainly quite a bit of vision loss. Now, honestly, there are other diseases where with our best treatment, even with surgery, with, with all the medical armaments we have, sometimes people still will lose vision. And that's where, you know, Stephanie might be familiar with low vision services and, and trying to use, you know, the remaining vision someone has. But yes, it is good to be obviously very honest with your eye doctor if you do notice any change in vision. Absolutely. Dr. Caldwell, can I, can go I, ahead. I just go want, ahead. Yeah, I just want to feed off of that is... Um, you know, twice a year, four times a year, then whatever, whether it's twice or four times, the number's too high. I have patients that come in that um, will go to the store and buy those reading glasses because all their life they've had great distance vision and they just need reading glasses. And in their late 40s, early 50s, they develop glaucoma. And glaucoma... Yeah, it, what is glaucoma? I was going to ask that question. Yeah. Um, glaucoma is a disease of the optic nerve. Um, the optic nerve is what connects your eye to your brain. And a simple way of thinking of it, it's got 1.2 million fibers in it. And for some reason, when the pressure runs too high um, uh, or maybe some blood flow issues, that 1.2 million fibers, it goes down to a million, down to 800,000, six, and so on and so forth. And when you don't have your eye connected uh, to, your, to your brain, then obviously the image can't get back uh, and we lose vision. Um, one of the risk factors for that is running a high pressure in your eye. And a normal pressure based on statistics is 10 to 21. And someone can have a pressure of 28 or 30 and it just slowly crept up over the years and they never really felt that. And they're walking around all these years, 10, 15 years, um, with high pressure slowly damaging that nerve, um, and it leads to vision loss. So I have these patients coming in 65, 70 years old saying, hey, doc, I think it's time for cataract surgery. I check their pressure. Um, the pressure's 30, 32. Look at their optic nerve, and it's dead. And this is neurological tissue. Once it's gone, we can't, you know, we can't bring it back. Um, at least in 2016, we can't. So, you know, again, that's why we want um, patients, you know, 50 years and older should be getting yearly eye exams, looking for cataracts, looking for glaucoma, and systemic disease detection. You know, a lot of times as optometrists, we pick up diabetes and high blood pressure in patients' eyes, um, and we get them off and get them plugged back into the health system. So, um, you know, as optometrists, you know, we talked about depression, we talked about diabetes now and hypertension. So, uh, you know, pretty important to get your eyes checked. Something else. Go ahead. I was going to add to that a little bit. And I think that gets back to the heart of why we have Save Your Vision Month. You know, really, 
This is something that we've been doing for many years now, and it's just spreading the word about the importance of getting in and having routine eye exams, you know, not waiting until you find that there's really a problem. And this truly gets to the heart of children because I see it every day where, you know, there are procedures in place to do vision screenings at pediatricians and schools and and parents really think that that's enough. And for most children, it is, you know, and the screenings do a great job in finding kids. But this just happened to me two days ago, three days ago, actually, uh, where I saw a 12-year-old child who came in who had their, actually, actually, they were 13, but had their very first eye exam at age 12. And way too late at this point to treat a problem, which is something called amblyopia, where one eye cannot see 20-20 due to some different visual problems or sometimes some eye muscle coordination problems. And it was heartbreaking for me to have to tell this 13-year-old girl and her mother that, unfortunately, you know, they had tried to patch for the past year. Patching therapy is still something we do for for this particular problem, amblyopia, but they maybe got a tiny bit of vision improvement, but unfortunately, due to her age and due to that there wasn't any, you know, improvement over that past year, that that was all we can do. And it's so important. We want to prevent that scenario from happening. And you can't imagine how often I see that. How young should a child come in? Yes. So good. I was hoping to talk about this. So, you know, this is an area over the years where our recommendations have changed a little bit. And certainly, you know, we know the world is all about preventative medicine today. And certainly with the eye, it's equally as important. You know, in Pennsylvania, we have a program called Kids Welcome Here for our uh, members of the Pennsylvania Optometric Association. And it's a program which helps to help our docs educate their patients about the importance of getting their children in for routine eye exams. We recommend the first exam by age one, believe it or not. And by age one, between six months and 12 months, you'd be surprised how easy that that exam can be. And we can do a great job objectively measuring children's eyes. And we look for the big issues. We look for, are they born with certain eye diseases? Um, Do they need glasses, believe it or not? Sometimes very rarely, but sometimes they can get that young or particularly eye muscle coordination issues. And then after that, we recommend the next exam at age three and then right before kindergarten at age five. So those are three very crucial times that we can pick up specific types of eye disease and vision issues that we can prevent scenarios like I mentioned the young girl I saw this past week. Yeah, that's hey, something we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to see. Go ahead. Can, I just want to feed off of that. And then certainly Marianne can, uh, can, can feed off of this is that. Um, well, as leaders in the profession, we always need to um, make sure that the public isn't confused. And I think a lot of confusion comes in when um, uh, uh, there's a school screening or there's a local screening done in the area. And I think parents um, out there confuse that with a full comprehensive eye exam. And Mary and Dr. Boltz here will probably know the statistics better than I do, but even in the most sensitive uh, screening test that's out there, I can only pick up 30% of the time uh, an, an eye disease, meaning that you're missing 70% of the time. So, you know, I guess uh, uh, I want to get out to the public there is don't be confused when you go for a screening and someone passes. There could still certainly be eye disease or still these pediatric issues that are out there. And I'll tell you, just so important we think about i for years i've always been advocates of if not seeing a child at age one maybe even if we miss that age three cutoff please bring your children in for eye exams before they start kindergarten and 
you know, we know that dental associations have done wonderful jobs educating parents about, ooh, get get their teeth checked. You know, um, schools in Pennsylvania require a dental check before they start kindergarten. But unfortunately, there's no requirements for eye exams. And granted, teeth are very important. I, I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want my dentist to get upset at me. But uh, you know, what do we use for learning? It's actually said approximately 80% of what we learn as a child through our eyes. You know, so, so important for that that proper learning. I want to take uh, a few emails that we've received from uh, some of our listeners. Uh, Dean from Lancaster says, I'm notorious for using inexpensive sunglasses because I lose and break them a lot. And you kind of touched on this, but what are the proper sunglasses to use? Yeah, here the the key here is is to make sure that they're one hundred percent UV protection. Um, but one thing that you know, if we go into dim light, our pupils dilate, and we do know that uh, this ultraviolet light is a link to uh, early onset of cataracts and to macular degeneration. And if you're using uh, a sunglass, it's not 100% UV. If you put a pair of sunglasses on, it makes um, the environment dark where your eye is. It causes the pupil to dilate. And then you, in a sense, could be letting more ultraviolet light into the eye, creating that dry eye, that cataract and macular degeneration. So make sure that they're 100% UV protection. Okay. Steve asks, what about the effect from LED lighting? They emit a lot of blue light. Um, Dr. Caldwell did touch on that a little bit earlier as well, is that we know that certain wavelengths of light are more damaging to our eye and actually that end of the spectrum is a little bit more concerning so you know i'm sure most people they have ever just blue blockers and that's really for that reason that we know having that full spectrum ultraviolet coverage and particularly for that end of the spectrum very important because it is so much more damaging so we've used the word spectrum several times i want to go to the opposite end of the spectrum we were talking <laughs> about children dr caldwell and we've talked about this several times, but age-related macular degeneration, what is it? Um, Well, real easy, it's a disease of your retina. Um, The retina is, the eye is like a camera. It has a focusing system, and we can add to the focusing system with contacts and glasses, but we have to focus the image on the retina. And there's one particular part of our retina that is for details, telling E's from F's and O's from G's. And that's our macula, and it's smack dab right in the center of your vision. And um, and it degenerates, and we lose our central vision. Um, we do know that there's uh, it is genetic component. Um, however, with um, there are some... Uh, there are some modifying factors that we can do that, that, that are out there. And again, we've touched upon that healthy diet. Talk about wearing sunglasses, keep that blood pressure under control. Um, and then early detection of when the macular degeneration is occurring. There's two forms. There's a dry form and a wet form. And the wet form, all it means is that a, a blood vessel has grown in there that shouldn't have been in there, and it's bleeding. And that's really where a lot of the advancements have taken place. You know, 20 years ago when I started, we used to have to burn a hole in the retina to kill that blood vessel. And now we have injections that are out there which can, uh, that can target this blood vessel and, and reverse it. The drawback to that is I have people up to 40 and 50 eye shots in their eye. 
but it's maintaining their vision. Mm. About all the time we have for today's program, but uh, I think we got a lot of information out there, and I even gotten a few emails from people saying, oh, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because now I'm, I'm thinking about it. So I uh, want to thank our guest today, Dr. Marianne Boltz, Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at Penn State Eye Center, and Dr. Greg Caldwell. He's a doctor of optometry who practices in Duncansville. Doctors uh, Boltz and Caldwell, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Scott. It was our pleasure. O- honor and a pleasure here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The American Cancer Society's Bark for Life has become one of Central Pennsylvania's most fun and anticipated fundraisers in just a few uh, short years. This year's event is scheduled for April 30th at Indian Echo Caverns in Hummelstown. According to the event news release, Bark for Life is an opportunity for people to be empowered through their canine companion partnerships and to continue to contribute to cancer cures. Joining us on the program is Diane Phillips, Director of Government Relations for the American Cancer Society Action Network, the East Central Division. Ann Lipko is a cancer survivor, and Myra Taylor is the Bark for Life Volunteer Event Lead. And we welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Welcome, all three of you. Now, Andrew, you're going to have to get a little closer to the microphone there. There you go. Well, thank you for, for joining us today. Thanks, and, of course, Scott. we're also joined by Mikey. Mikey, what, do you, what did you find on the He found something to eat on the floor there. Let's eat. I don't know. Hopefully it's fit. I, I don't know, but usually this studio is so clean, I'm surprised he's he's chewing something. But uh, what is Mike? What, what kind of breeds Mikey? He's a yellow lab. That's, and mm-hmm. he's yours? Yes, he is. Yeah. And he's a beautiful dog. Thank you. And I can tell he's very well behaved, but yes. uh, you are a cancer survivor, Anne. Yes. Um, how does Mikey help you? Um, you know, he was just therapeutic for our entire family. Um, we got Mikey, and um, about four months later, I had a relapse with leukemia and um, went through a bone marrow transplant. And so it was just a lot on all our, my whole family, my husband, my parents, um, and he's just been therapy for all of us every day, no matter what kind of news you got at the hospital when you came home, that tail was wagging, and they're happy to see you. And uh, he's just been awesome for, for all of us. Now, honestly. is he trained in any specific way? No. 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 He's a lover. He, honestly, um, he, no, he's not a therapy dog certified, but he's definitely been our, our therapy. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the Bark for Life, and then we'll get into research and uh, when you you talk about the companions and uh, how helpful. I think that Ann just uh, kind of described it pretty well. Well, he is really relaxing now. He's down on the side at your feet, and (laughs) (laughs) and by the way, we'll have for those those dog lovers out there, there will be pictures of Mikey on the (laughs) on the website. But Myra, uh, I participated. My family participated with our dog Chase a few years ago. Great time. Explain what Bark for Life is. Bark for Life was started uh, about a decade ago by a woman who was part of the Relay for Life, which is the largest fundraiser for the American Cancer Society. And um, because of its size and all that goes on, uh, the, bar- the dogs don't participate in that. Uh, but she decided to have a, a dog walk uh, to support her relay team. And when it was so well attended, she thought to herself, this is amazing. Let's see what we can do. And now Bark for Life in that decade is nationwide. And it's held in cities all over the country. Uh, and it brings a unique uh, uh, perspective to um, 
uh, cancer fundraising, uh, fundraising for uh, cancer research. And, and that is, and Anne said it best, I, I don't think you can get any better than what Anne said. The caregiving qualities of dogs, our canine companions, uh, for people who have cancer, uh, is amazing. Uh, Anne has also experienced, as she's told us, as had uh, have many uh, cancer survivors, what the therapy dogs in the hospitals can do for them. Uh, if you're a dog lover and you're listening, you know. It, it doesn't, it's not hard. Uh, you know their love, unconditional. Anne made an interesting point, too. She said, you know, there were days when I was not looking good. Uh, when, uh, you know, steroids had me swollen, uh, I lost my hair, all kinds. Mikey didn't care and doesn't care. Dogs don't care. What this event does specifically is says thank you to those canine companions. We're going to have over 35 vendors there who are uh, going to bring lots of love and fun things for dogs, uh, for humans as well. It's a non-competitive walk, uh, so you can relax and enjoy your day uh, with your dog. Well, and that's just it. I, I, I often get the sense that uh, even though we have many more people who participate in Relay for Life or uh, 5K runs or something sure. like that, but if, who will say, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't think I'm in good enough shape to do it. Sure. But if you say that you can bring the dog and walk the dog exactly. uh, you know, around on a beautiful spring morning, then they may change their minds a little bit and participate. Absolutely. And remember, the focus is on the caregiving qualities of canines. Uh, specifically, any canine can be there. You and I. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Uh, uh, well, when I say very fortunate, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And that's what I give to, to everybody here. And I know Diane Phillips does and, and many other people who are part of this. But it was started by a cancer survivor for those who potentially have cancer or who have survived cancer. So you know what? If you're in the middle of treatment and you're able to get out, come on over. It's non-competitive. We will take care of you. You can relax with your dog who's giving your love. And really, that's the focus of non, the non-competitiveness, and I hope that makes sense because and, and the, it's and, an appreciation. And yeah. the fundraising part is everyone who participates pays a, a – I don't, I don't want to call it a fee. Sure. Yeah, um, we have it. It is a fundraiser, so we do have it. If you could register, that'd be awesome. You register you and your dog. You get a neat goodie bag. You get a great time. There's so much fun. We have canine demonstrations by uh, support from our law enforcement uh, canine units. A shout out to the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, the Pennsylvania Capitol Police, Dauphin County uh, Sheriff's Department will be there, and the newly formed canine unit from the Pennsylvania Game Commission. So a lot of fun. It's well, going to be a really fun day. And you know, when, when I was there, I remember that there was a lot of interest in uh, the, the law enforcement uh, canine sure. because I remember at the time, who was the dog that had been wounded? You oh, know, Zeke. Zeke. Zeke was shot in the line of duty right. in is Laura Paxton is, 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 Township. Still, Zeke is doing very well. Good. He's in good. Uh, Harrisburg City Canine, so shout out to him and, and all canines everywhere. There? Zeke will not be able to be there. That's okay. We still send him our love, and you'll send appreciation to these law enforcement canines, and uh, we're going to have a great time. Um, just to let you know, some vendors, if that's okay, we have kind of a special event. Our sponsors are uh, Penn State Health Cancer Institute is sponsoring us. A shout out to WHTM Channel 27. Valerie Pritchett will be there. She's a dog lover. But we have some unique things too for humans. Uh, we have a hack, Harrisburg Area Community College Massage Therapy will be there giving out massages. Uh, and you can do that while you're strolling around with your mimosa because Springgate Winery will be there as well. Oh, Springgate boy. Vineyard. We're going to have a great time. <laughs> Sounds that way. Great time. So, so Diane Phillips, this is uh, one of the fun events that the American Cancer Society is involved with. And it's not just for fun, though. I mean, yeah, you have a good time. The dog has a good time. But... 
I mean, this is serious business. We're raising money for cancer research. Well, I should ask you, what is the, does the money go to? Oh, absolutely. And it's absolutely fun with a purpose. So you, you're right. Uh, the funds go towards research. Um, the American Cancer Society um, sponsors important cancer research every year. Um, and in fact, uh, we've invested more than $19.5 million in Pennsylvania alone. So, uh, But there are also uh, programs for patients. Uh, we provide a lot of support to folks in treatment. Uh, one of our signature uh, programs is our Hope Lodge program. So we have a Hope Lodge right in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and also one in the Philadelphia area. Um, and uh, we actually also work with hotels to, pro to provide a, a, a voucher program. Um, there are other things that we offer. We offer uh, Road to Recovery. Uh, volunteers across the state provide uh, uh, access to treatment for folks that have you know, transportation difficulties, so they'll drive people to and from treatment appointments. Um, Look Good, Feel Better, that is a program for folks, particularly women who um, you know, have had appearance changes based on cancer and, and treatment, um, and it's a way to you know, start um, you know, getting that self-confidence back and feeling better about yourself. So really, um, it's, it's all about coming out and having fun, but uh, while you're having fun, you're absolutely supporting the services of the American Cancer Society. The, the one thing I'd also like to mention is we, we want to be there for every single person that's diagnosed with cancer as well as their families. We want to be the go-to resource. So uh, folks should feel free to go on our website, which is cancer.org, or we also have a 24-7 um, uh, 800 number that people can call. So that's one 800 227-2345. That is for any kind of information on cancer. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Diane Phillips, Director of Government Relations for the American Cancer Society's Action Network, East Central Division, and Ann Lipko, who is a cancer survivor. Myra Taylor is the Bark for Life volunteer event lead. And we have Mikey in the studio as well, and he's taking a little bit of a nap right now. But uh, uh, yeah, we'll have pictures of Mikey on our website, WITF.org. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org, or you can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Diane, quick question about the kind of progress that we've made in cancer research. You know, it's been a long time now since uh, there was a war on cancer declared. And as you said yourself, we raise millions of dollars for cancer research. We have come a long way in technology and in treatment of certain types of cancer, probably all cancers, but some more successful than others. But that money that is raised what do we have to show for it? And I hate to put it that way because it sounds like I'm questioning how it is. But what are some of the things that have occurred, some of the progress that has occurred in the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years? Oh, you know, a lot of significant <clears throat> progress has been made. We have been able to, um, in some cases, as you mentioned, find very successful treatments. Um, but it really all does depend on, um, you know, what, what type of cancer and where the cancer is located. I think some of the most exciting uh, results that we've seen are um, targeted um, cell uh, um, research that has helped uh, people's immune systems actually combat cancer. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we have in some cases gone from um, having cancer, you know, be um, terminal to um, actually providing life-saving treatment so that people are living with cancer or they have actually been declared cancer-free and, you know, has, have successfully survived. Um, a lot more needs to be done. And um, as a matter of fact, you've also kind of touched on something else that's near and dear to my heart. So the American Cancer Society works really hard to uh, fundraise private dollars. But another thing that we do is we advocate. And so we advocate within the Pennsylvania legislature and um, folks down in D.C. And the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute are really the premier um, uh, sources for cancer research. And so we want to make sure that uh, the National Cancer Institute receives funding for life-saving treatment, too. So every year we bring over 700 volunteers across the nation down to D.C. to be that voice in Washington. And uh, you, you talked a little bit about uh, your experience, but uh, uh, by the way, how are you, how's your health today? Very good, thank you. Well, that's good to hear. But when did you, when were you diagnosed? And you mentioned a bone marrow transplant. What have you gone through? Um, I was originally diagnosed um, in 2007 um, with leukemia. And at the fir at that time, you know, you're talking about the differences in treatment. You know, I've kind of lived to see the differences in treatment in just the past eight, nine years, what was available then to what is available now. Um, the treatment I actually got, they don't even do really anymore. Really? They take bits and pieces of it, but it's almost outdated because it's eight, nine years ago, you know. So I went through a chemo treatment regimen, got into remission, and I was good for two and a half years, and then I relapsed. Um, and at that point, my option was a bone marrow transplant. And um, I was lucky enough to have a lady from Germany donate her bone marrow to me. Uh, she was my perfect match, my only perfect match, and um, did chemo and got a bone marrow treatment. And then I was healthy for another two and a half to three years, and then I relapsed for a third time. And at that point, um, this is where the research came in. I got to be part of a um, clinical trial down at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. And basically, when you say the targeted treatment, they took my T cells out of me and they, um, they genetically, you know, modified, genetically them. modified them. So then when they put them back into me weeks later, they're now targeted to fight any cancer cells that come back. Mm. So I participated in this trial and I was the first person that they've done it with with my type of leukemia it was all you know something new and I got to be part of that and since then it was just a year this past July that I've been in remission and hopefully the t-cells now from now on if leukemia cells come back the t-cells are hopefully going to fight off any cancer cells that would come back but this this t-cells that they didn't have that even two to three years ago. I mean, it's new. And when you talk to some of the doctors down at, when I was down at MD Anderson, they said, this is what they're moving towards, you know. Mm. Well, congratulations. Yeah, and uh, I awesome. feel like I'm in the presence of uh, a celebrity. You, here. So you yeah. are. It's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's, you know, Anne is so unassuming. She's a school teacher in the Central Dolphin School District. Shout out to Southside Elementary. But it's Anne who is my inspiration and own inspiration for so many. The work that Diane Phillips does every single day. So come out to Indian Echo Caverns and enjoy yourself. Yeah, we have about 30 seconds. 
seconds, Myra. The the message you'd like to leave. Uh, the the message us. we'd like to leave is the likes of Ann Lipko are living today because of the efforts of people who come to even the smallest of Bark for Life like ours, which is awesome. It's going to be a big event this year. Come out April 30th. Uh, it's a Saturday from 10 to 1, Indian Echo Caverns. Get on our website. Just do a Google search for Bark for Life, Hummelstown Hershey, or uh, Yahoo, and please come out and support us. It's life-saving. It really is. Uh, Diane Phillips is with the American Cancer Society, Myra Taylor, Bark for Life volunteer event lead, and Ann Lipko is a cancer survivor and uh, has an inspiring story to tell. Thank all three of you for uh, being with us today. And, of course, there's Mikey. Don't worry, I wasn't going to forget Mikey, <laughs> although, you know, he's he's been kind of relaxed through this whole thing <laughs> down underneath the, the table here just looking around. But uh, thank all three of you for being with us, and uh, Mikey as well. Thanks. We'll talk to you on uh, tomorrow's uh, program at 9 a.m.